Well, this morning we are continuing. We've come to our final study, but we are, we have come to our final study in the book of Second Peter. And we began this study right back on Sunday, the 28th of March, 2021. Um, and we now find ourselves in the very final portion of Peter's letter as he wraps things up here in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. Now, as we know, the, the underlying theme of Second Peter chapter 3 it has to do with the second coming of Christ. It's the underlining theme that we find here in chapter 3. The second coming of Christ, as we know, it was a doctrine that was being denied. It was a doctrine that was being distorted by false teachers that had crept into the church by stealth. And so what we have Peter doing is that he's been, as he's been doing right throughout the whole letter of Second Peter, he's been helping us to know how to think concerning false teaching. And in chapter 3, specifically, how to think concerning the false teaching regarding the second coming of Christ. And so in response to this, we saw in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, that Peter first focused on the certainty of Christ's return. That just as Jesus came the first time, well, he too will also come a second time. And we know that he's going to come a second time simply because this is foretold by the Old Testament prophets and also by the New Testament apostles. This is how Peter has got us to think in chapter 3 so far. And then in last week, in chapter, uh, last week, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, we saw that Peter's focus shifted from the certainty of Christ's return to then the timing of Christ's return. And what he helped us to understand is that the seeming delay of, of, of the, of, um, from our perspective, the seeming delay of Christ's return from our perspective is only because our perception of time is actually different than God's. And in addition to this, Peter explained to us that the reason for why Christ has not yet returned is simply because God is gracious. The only reason that, that Christ hasn't returned is because God is gracious and because God is patient. And for everyone who will be saved... God is giving them an opportunity to be saved. That is the reason for why Christ has not yet returned. He is gracious. He is long-suffering. He is patient, waiting for all who he has called to come to him. And really, that brings us right up to today's passage in verses 10 to 18, where Peter moves from, yes, firstly, the, the, the certainty of Christ's return, last week, the timing of Christ's return, to hear this morning the response to Christ's return. And really, as we think about the response of Christ's return, really this final portion here, well, Peter really deals with a question. He, he deals with the question of, so what? He deals with the question of, what does it actually matter? Yes, the, the, the Bible teaches that Jesus will return a second time. We know that as a certainty. We know it's going to happen at some time, at some point in the future. But how are we to respond as believers? How are we to respond? How should that doctrine affect our lives in the here and now, knowing that Jesus is going to return again at a future time? Well, by way of an outline, the way that Peter unfolds this for us, well, we can divide today's passage into four main parts. This is going to be forming our outline for our study today. As Peter explains to us how we as believers should be responding in light of the return of of Christ. Firstly, we are going to see in verses 10 to 11 that we are to pursue personal holiness. That's the first response of how we are to respond in light of Christ's return. Number two, verses 12 to 13, we are to maintain an eternal perspective. It's the second thing he wants us to be responding with. Secondly, or thirdly, um, we are to wait 
with an expectant readiness. That's verses 14 to 16. And finally, verses 17 to 18, we are to grow in the, in the truth of Scripture. So the question is, well, how are we to respond? How is the doctrine of the second coming of Christ meant to affect our lives as believers? Number one, pursue personal holiness. Number two, maintain an eternal perspective. Number three, wait with an expectant readiness. Number, number four, grow in the truth of Scripture. And so let's see how Peter unfolds this for us in the text that is before us here today. Let's now give our attention to verses 10 to 11. And this is where we see, number one, we are to pursue personal holiness. Give our attention to what the Apostle Peter says, beginning in verse 10. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now let's just stop there for a moment. What we see here is that Peter begins in verse 10 by reminding us of one of the aspects of what the return of Christ will be like. That's how he starts. One aspect of what the return of Christ will be like. As we've seen in previous weeks, the return of Jesus, it will be a glorious time. It'll be a, a tremendous time. It'll be a wonderful time for God's people as Christ comes, as he establishes king, his kingdom, he rules as king with his saints within his kingdom. That's the glorious part of it. But in addition to Christ's return being a glorious time for us as believers, we have to understand that it's also going to be a terrifying time for the unbelieving world. Because the return of Christ, what, what that will mean for the unbelieving world, those who are not trusting in Christ for their salvation, what it will mean for the unbelieving world is that the second coming of Christ will be a time of judgment, and the leading up will be a, t a time of judgment. And this is exactly what Peter is getting at here, beginning in verse 10, where he refers to, if you notice it in your Bibles there, the phrase, the day of the Lord. Now that phrase, the day of the Lord, it's, it's mentioned right throughout Scripture. We see that phrase mentioned both in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. And every single time that this, 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 this phrase, the day of the Lord, is mentioned, it always speaks about an unparalleled judgment, an unparalleled day of darkness, an unparalleled day of damnation and condemnation. Scripture speaks about the day of the Lord as a time when God will completely destroy his enemies, vindicating, vindicating his name, revealing his glory, and establishing his kingdom. And so, to give you an idea now of what it is that the Apostle Peter is actually talking about here in verse 10, I want us to just get acquainted with just a few other verses in Scripture that actually talk about this phrase or this time known as the day of the Lord. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 to 15, this is how Isaiah speaks of God through Isaiah. It talks about the day of the Lord. He says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will be limp, every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrow will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Verse 9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel and both, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth. and The moon will not cause 
its light to shine. But then he continues on in verse 11 by saying, I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud. I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. And then verse 13 says, Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place. In the wrath of the Lord's hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger, it shall be as the hunted gazelle, and as a sheep that has no man that no man takes up, every man will turn to his own people, everyone will flee to his own land, everyone who is found will be thrust through, and everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Pretty graphic, right? What about the prophet Joel? Joel chapter one, verse fifteen, speaks of the day of the Lord this way. He says, Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. We move over to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, verse, verses 1 and 2. It says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, the sound, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. And then goes on to describe it in verse 2. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been. Nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. Zephaniah. He, he spoke about the day of the Lord in Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 14, and this is what he said. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. And there are other passages in the Old Testament, but I'll draw your passage to another passage in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. This is what the Apostle Paul says concerning the day of the Lord. He says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, I have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now, we haven't exhausted all the passages here. There's about 18 or 19 other passages, both in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, that, that refer to the day of the Lord. But I, I think we've kind of gone through enough to probably get the picture, haven't we? It's going to be an unpleasant time, that's an understatement, an unpleasant time for the unbelieving world when God one day unleashes his judgment upon it. And notice that in the rest of verse 10 of Second Peter chapter 3, in your Bible's there, that Peter describes the universal upheaval that's going to take place as a result of what's known as the day of the Lord. A universal upheaval. I mean, the basic atomic components that make up the universe, that hold this universe together, it'll be destroyed. And, and notice that it will be, it'll involve heat, it says there. Heat that is so intense, heat that is so powerful, that this heat will literally consume everything in the material realm. Those who are concerned about global warming... <laughs> We've got a, a, some global warming that's coming up, and there's nothing that any political kind of agenda can, can do to, to stop this one. With all, it'll destroy everything 
This heat will destroy everything in the material realm. It'll destroy all of the civilizations, all ecosystems, all natural resources will be done away with. And apart from believers who Christ will sovereignly preserve, everything in this material universe will one day be utterly destroyed. And unlike the, the worldwide flood in which God covered and destroyed the, water, uh, the world with water, the day of the Lord is not going to be with water. The day of the Lord is going to be with fire. And what's more, there's going to be nothing left. Everything will be consumed. Now we know that Scripture teaches, even Peter teaches in this passage, that there is coming a, a, a new heavens and there is coming a, a new earth. But for now, I think it's worth us taking a moment to really let this reality of the Lord, the day of the Lord, really sink in. It's important that we let this truth sink in. There is not a material, single material item which we now possess that will survive the day of the Lord. Our house won't survive. Our car will not survive. Our nicely landscaped properties will not survive. Our neighborhoods will not survive. Our high school and tertiary certificates will not survive. Our workplaces will not survive. The banks that hold all of our money, they won't survive either. And I know that insurance companies will usually provide cover for what they call acts of God, but I can assure you that this act of God will certainly not be covered, not by a long shot, because those insurance companies will be consumed as well. Now there's another thing that's worth pointing out in verse 10, and it has to do with how the Lord, day of the Lord is going to begin. How is it going to begin? Well, Peter says it there in verse 10, notice it. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. What is Peter wanting us to understand here? What is the imagery that he's trying to get across to us? What is, what's the point that he wants us to understand by referring to the day of the Lord coming upon us like a, a thief in the night? Well, he wants us to understand that the day of the Lord is going to be unexpected. It's going to come without warning. When those labor pangs start coming in of God's judgment, no one's going to be expecting it. I mean, we only have to think back to what, what it is that Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter 5, the, the passage that we've just read out. He says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And then notice in verse 3 of First Thessalonians 5, Paul goes as far as saying that people will even have a sense of peace and safety. People are going to think, in other words, people are going to think the very, last happen, the very last thing that could possibly happen right now is for the entire world to be consumed. So there's going to be a, a sense of peace and safety leading up to the time when the day of the Lord begins. In other words, people are going to be completely unprepared. When the day of the Lord comes, it's going to be the very last thing that people are going to expect. And so why? Why is it that Peter is reminding us about the day of the Lord? Why is he talking about to us about the, the day of the Lord and how the day of the Lord will be ushered in? Well, really, there are two main reasons that we can draw from the text itself. Firstly, he is reminding us of the certainty that this is going to happen. While the false teachers, as we saw previous in previous verses, while the false teachers were, were scoffing and mocking at the idea, well, the day of the Lord is going to sneak up on them, and they're going to be unpleasantly surprised when it finally reaches them. So that's the first reason for why he's reminding us about the day of the Lord. But there's a second reason for why Peter is reminding us about the day of the Lord here, and that has to do with the response of the believer. 
how we should be responding as believers in the here and the now. How do we know this? Well, look at the next verse in your Bibles there, verse 11. What does the word begin with? What does the verse begin with? It begins with the word, therefore. In other words, Peter is making a connection. This is the day of the Lord. This is what's going to happen. But now I want to talk about your response as a Christian. He says in verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Do you see what Peter's getting at here? Do you, do you, do you see what Peter is wanting us to think about? I mean, it, it's not going to take a, a rocket scientist. You don't have to be the sharpest tool in the shed to kind of work it out. It's very straightforward for us to see. Oh, what Peter is saying is that the truth of, God, of God's promised future judgment upon us, well, it should cause us to live distinct than the rest of the world. The reality is that, that God's promised judgment is coming should cause us to live in a way that is distinct, different from everyone else. In other words, knowing the final outcome of this world, it should motivate us, and it should motivate us to live in a different way a new quality of life, you might want to call it. After all, what are the dominating characteristics that are going to be present in the lives of those who Christ comes to judge? What are the characteristics do we find in the lives of the unbelieving world? Well, we know that there'll be liars, characterized by lying, liars, thieves, fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, covetous, and, and so on. We know the list. But these sort of things are not what should be characterized in the life of a believer. A believer should not be living the same as those whom Christ is coming to judge. But instead, we are to live how? We are to live not as citizens of earth. We are to live as citizens of heaven. Paul puts it like this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. He says, Brethren, Join in following my example and note those who so walk, as you have for us a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and tell you, uh, uh, tell you, you even, uh, tell, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Then he goes on in verse 20 to say, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may, may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue even all things to himself. The return of Christ, it should cause us to remember that one day, each one of us will have to stand before our God, stand before our Savior, stand before our Creator. And each one of us will have to give an account of how it is that we have lived our lives. Now, we know for the believer, this is not standing in an account in order to, to, to know, to decide whether we're going to heaven or to hell. But instead, we will have to stand before Christ one day and give account as believers, how have we lived our lives here on earth? The Apostle Paul puts it this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or 
bad. And so the first thing that Peter points out to us when it comes to responding correctly to the, to the return of Christ or the reality of the return of Christ is that it should cause us to pursue personal holiness. It should cause us to pursue personal holiness. The reality that our Lord and Saviour could return at only any moment, the reality that our Lord and Saviour could return like a thief in the night, well, that should cause us to be thinking about how we're living right now and it should rouse up a desire within us to want to live a life that is pleasing to him. Our lives shouldn't be characterized as those who will be one day consumed in Christ's fiery judgment upon the unbelieving world, but our lives should be characterized as those who are citizens of heaven, those who have been spared from the wrath to come. So I suppose it's worth us asking the question, right? That we should ask the question, what is characterizing our lives? What characterizes our lives right now in the way in which we are living? What do we ask in a slightly different way? <clears throat> we'll ask the question this way. What do people see when they look in on our lives? What, what do they see? I mean, is there anything that comes to mind where, that we may need to stop doing in order to be living consistently as a citizen of heaven? Is there anything that we need to kind of can we need to push aside. On the other hand, is there anything that we need to start doing? Is there anything that might be coming to mind that might be absent from our lives right now that wouldn't be representative as, as one who is heaven-bound, one who is living as a citizen of heaven? Well, this is the first point that Peter points to when it comes to responding to the truth of Christ's return. As believers, we are to be pursuing personal holiness but notice secondly verses 12 to 13 peter he explains a second way that we should be responding to christ's return and that is by maintaining an eternal perspective and so let's look at how peter puts it here beginning in verse 12 he says looking for and hastening the coming of the day of god because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the the elements will mount with fervent heat and nevertheless According to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what is Peter saying here? Well, in addition to pursuing personal holiness, what Peter does here is that he encourages us to maintain an eternal perspective. Now, we've already seen that we, the universe as we know it will one day be destroyed, but what Peter is reminding us of in verse 13 is that there will be a new heavens, that there will be a new earth. Yes, the old will be one day destroyed. That is no doubt. That is going to happen. There's no insurance company that can cover that act of God. But what he's reminding us of here, that there will be a new heavens. There will be a new earth. The, the Apostle John, he talks about it in this way, very last chapter of our Bibles, Revelation chapter 21. And he describes the new heavens, the new earth, in this kind of way. He says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, 
and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And then he continues on in verse 3, but saying, God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall, shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. I mean, this is the same picture that the Apostle Peter is wanting to give us here in the passage that we're looking at. This is the picture that he's wanting us to flood our thinking with right now in verses 12 to 13. The new heavens and the new earth. But notice carefully in verses 12 and 13, notice in your Bibles the two words that, that he uses there. Notice that Peter uses the word looking or look two times in, in regard to what is going to come. In verse 12, he says, looking for the hastening and the coming of the day of God. And then notice in verse 13, he says, nevertheless, we according to his promise, look, there's the word again, look for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwell. What is he saying here? Well, in both of these verses, Peter speaks of believers who are living their lives now with a broader perspective, a broader perspective of what's going to be taking place in the future. Do we see that there? Do we see that there in our passages in verses 12 to 13? Look, looking. What is he saying? He's saying, live your life now with a perspective of what is about to come. In verse 11, we saw that Peter tells us that the return of Christ should cause us to live differently, whereas here in verses 12 and 13, he tells us that the return of Christ should cause us to think differently. In other words, we shouldn't just be living now as though this world is all that there is. We shouldn't be as Christians. But we should be living with one eye on heaven, one eye on eternity, one eye on the reality that there is coming a time where the old will be passed away, the old will be destroyed, and there will be a new heavens. There will be a new earth. It's an eternal perspective. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. And then he goes on to say, Set your mind on things above, not things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Same kind of thing. Looking. Our thinking has to be changed. Our thinking has to be broader than just the here and the now. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer, as we know, it's like the, 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 the faith hall of fame, you know, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 goes through and he lists many people in the Old Testament who have lived lives that were pleasing to God. And what's interesting, though, is in Hebrews chapter 11, when he gets to verse 13, the writer of the Hebrews, he explains just how these people of faith, how those who, who found their names in the faith, um, uh, uh, the, the hall of, uh, faith hall of fame, how they actually got their names in there in the first place, and how these people of faith, how they viewed their time while they were here on earth. How did, how did they view the here and the now? And the writer tells us in verse 13, he says in Hebrews 11 verse 13, he says, All these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, 
and confessed that they were, here it is, strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That's how they viewed their time. These are the people who pleased God, who lived lives of faith, whose names are written in Hebrews chapter 11 with many other of the giants of faith that you might want to call them. This is their perspective while they were here on earth. They viewed their time on earth as being strangers and being pilgrims. What do you mean strangers and pilgrims? Well, the word strangers and pilgrims, they referred to a traveler. They referred to a traveler who was just passing through a country, passing through a region. Yes, that person may have stayed for a few nights. Maybe that person may have even stayed within that region for a few years. But there is something that the, the stranger and the pilgrim knew. The stranger and the pilgrim knew, this is not my home. The stranger and the pilgrim knew, I am only here in this place temporarily. The stranger and the pilgrim knew, I am off to another place, and so I better not get too comfortable here. I better not establish myself so much as though this is all that there is because this place is not my home. I'm a stranger, I'm a pilgrim. Some translations will call it even an alien. Not from this place, in other words. This is the perspective that the Old Testament saints had. This is the perspective that they had that was a pleasing to God. It was, it was viewing the time here on earth. This is not all there is. There is still more to come, and so I better not get too comfortable. I am only temporary, here temporarily. I am a citizen of heaven, and until that time, I will just make sure that my perspective reflects that, and so it should be for us as believers. This is the perspective that we should have about our time here on earth. After all, think about it. The majority of our existence is not going to be spent on this earth as we know it. But instead, the majority of our existence is going to be spent in the new earth, which is to come. And what's more, as we've seen, there is not a single material thing that we can take with us to the place where we are going to be spending the majority of our eternity. So I think it kind of goes without saying, but this truth should cause us to think differently about our time here on earth. This truth should cause us to have a, a drastic effect. It should have a drastic effect on the, what it is that we prioritize on this earth. This truth should cause us to ha have a, a drastic effect on how it is that we use our time, how it is that we use and utilize our resources while we're here on earth. I suppose the question that we could be asking ourselves is simply this. Is the truth about eternity in the future, <clears throat> is that affecting how we live in the here and the now and the present? If a person was to look at our schedules, look at our calendars, would they go, wow, now there's a person who is not living for this earth only, there is a person who's living in light of eternity. Could, so, could people say that? If they looked at your, your calendar, looked at your schedules, see how it is that you're living your life. Is that what they would be able to extract from what they see? If a person was to look at your bank statement, would they think to themselves and have to conclude, wow, this guy is not only, this person's not only living for the here and now here on earth, this person is, is sowing into and using their resources, utilizing their resources for the world to come. Is that, that, what, is that what they would get from taking a look at that? Again, the reality of Christ's return 
It should cause us to live with an eternal perspective. One looking ahead, one eye here on heaven, but one eye looking there on, on eternity that is before us. Not just living for the here and the now. So this is the second thing that Peter talks, talks to us about, of how we should be responding in light of the truth of Christ's return. But in addition to maintaining an, an eternal perspective, there is a third way. A third way that Peter tells us as Christians that we are to respond in light of the return of Christ. In verses 14 to 16, he explains that it should cause us to wait with an expectant readiness. Wait with an expectant readiness. Now let's look at how he, he says this, in, beginning in verse 14. He says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him, in peace, without spot, and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do to the rest of, of the Scriptures." Now, I want to draw your attention to one phrase, which I think kind of unlocks what it is that the Apostle Peter is trying to communicate in these verses. And that is the phrase that's found partway through verse 14, and that's where Peter says, Be diligent to be found by him. I think that unlocks what it is that he's trying to say. Now, here's the thing. We know that the return of Christ is going to come upon us like a thief in the night, don't we? In other words, the return of Christ is going to be unexpected. Whereas what Peter is forcing us to think about right here is how Jesus is going to find us when he returns at that unexpected time. Isn't that an interesting question? Peter's forcing us to think about it there. Be diligent to be found by him, and we'll talk about what that looks like, but that's what he's getting us to think about. Be diligent to be found by him, thinking about how Christ is going to find us when he returns a second time. Isn't that an interesting question? How is Christ going to find us? How is Jesus going to find us when he returns at that unexpected moment? What do you think you're going to be thinking when he returns at that unexpected moment? What do you think you're going to be feeling at that unexpected moment? What do you think you'll be doing at that unexpected moment? What do you think you'll be saying at that unexpected moment? I bet if you think back, there's probably all sorts of situations that you're glad that Jesus didn't return, right? Right when you're really laboring that point and that argument with your spouse, yeah, I'm laying it down now, and then, oh, Jesus. Wow. What about your younger ones with the siblings? Aren't you glad that you weren't in the, just in the middle of, you know, raising a fist? ready to pound your sibling, you know, lashing out at your brothers or sisters right at that time that Jesus comes? Aren't you glad that you're not kind of in a sanctified way trying to nudge your way into the shared lunch line? I'm just thinking about my gut here. I want to get in first. I see that, I see the, the sushi there and some of Chin's nice, you know, meat dish that he's made there and you're just trying to nudge your way in a sanctified kind of way. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't remember? <clears throat> so what are you doing there? being selfish. There's probably a whole number of reasons, a whole number of things that come to mind. We go, man, I'm glad that Jesus didn't return at that point. Well, what we see in verse 14 is Peter's encouraging us with how to be found when Jesus returns again. 
He tells us what in verse 14? He says to be found at peace, which possibly be taken having a peace of mind, not being swayed by the world, not being swayed by the mockery and the ridicule of the unbelieving world, having a peace of mind when he returns. In other words, steadfast, ready, waiting. I'm not being swayed by the world and the influences of it. I have my my eyes and my focus on Jesus, ready for his return. But in addition to being found found by Jesus and peace, he also says, spot without spot and blameless. In other words, what is he talking about? He talks about the kind of Christian character that we should be having, that we should be living according to when Jesus returns at that unexpected moment. When he says without spot and blameless, what he's saying is that we wouldn't just be our lives marred with sin. We wouldn't be found by Jesus with our hand caught in the cookie jar. Oops. Caught. Busted. But instead, we'd be ready. We would be ready at that unexpected moment. Notice again in verse 15 that Peter makes, makes a reason or he speaks to the reason for why Christ has not yet returned. Why his delay? Why didn't he come when you're about ready to cut into the shared lunch line, when he caught you looking at that thing or doing that thing that you're not really meant to be doing and you know you're not meant to be? But why didn't he return then? Well, he says in verse 15, because of the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Now, why is, what is Peter getting at here? Peter's exhorting us once again to be living in a place of readiness. Of readiness. He's encouraging us to not get caught up so much in the affairs of day-to-day life that we lose sight of how it is that Christ will find us if he was to return today. He is talking about living with with an expectant readiness. And to give even further weight to this idea, this thought, Notice that Peter references the Apostle Paul, verses 15 and 16, who had previously written along similar lines. It's previously written about that state of readiness, being ready to be found by Jesus in a, in a right state. Now, obviously, the question that comes to mind is, well, what portion of, of, Peter's, of, what portion of Paul's writings is Peter actually talking about here? What is he referring to that supports what it is that Peter's saying right here in this passage? Well, it's likely that one of the passages he was thinking of was what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians that we've seen already, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. When we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, not only do we see Paul talking about the day of the Lord, similar to what Peter's talking about in verses 14 to 16, but we also see that he is talking about living with an expectant readiness for the return of Christ. Paul exhorts us to be ready, to be ready for if he was to return. And so let's read it for ourselves. We'll read over the first part again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Again, the Apostle Peter's directing our thoughts here, right? He's saying, look, Paul talked about this too. Well, where does Paul talk about being expectantly ready for the return of Christ, you know, for the day of the Lord? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5 is one of those passages. He says in verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, I have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord will come so as a thief in the night. And when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, they shall not escape. Then he goes on to verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light, sons of the day. 
We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Verse 7 says, For those who sleep at, sleep at night, those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are, are, who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another and edify one another, just as you are doing. Similar line of thought, isn't it? Similar line of thing. Peter is talking about how we are to be found by Jesus when he returns, and this is what we see Paul doing as well. It's an exhortation to be watchful. It's an exhortation to be ready. It's an exhortation for us to be expectant of the return of Jesus. In other words, we should be seeking to live our lives now in such a way that if Jesus was to return today, if he was to return today, that we would not be ashamed, but that we would be ready. We would be a yes, I've cleaned up my affairs, I've righted the wrongs to the best that I can, and here I am, I'm ready to go home with you to glory Jesus. I am ready. And I suppose that's the question we want to be asking ourselves today. Are we ready? Are we ready for that time? If we knew that Jesus was to return today, maybe even before the end of this sermon, if we knew that, is there anything that we would need to set straight in our lives right now? Is there anything that's coming to mind? If we knew that Jesus was going to return today, is there any spiritual affairs or maybe relational affairs with others that we would need to first set straight, that we'd need to first set in order beforehand? Are we ready? Because the reality is, the good news, I should say, is that Jesus has not yet returned. Which means that if there's anything coming to mind, that there is something that's outstanding, maybe some sin that we're not crucifying in the way that we probably can, the, God, the way that Christ has given us power to, if there is current tensions that we're just kind of letting fester, well, today is that day. Now is that time. We have time now to right the wrongs, to prepare ourselves for the time when our Lord and our Savior returns again. There is still time. And so we need to be expectant. We need to be ready. Well, in addition to waiting for the expectant, waiting with expectant readiness, there is a fourth and final way here that Peter tells us of how it is that we should respond as believers in light of the return of Christ. As Peter closes out this letter, verses 17 and 18, he finishes by telling us to grow in the truth of Scripture. This is the final thing. So let's give our attention now to verse 17. He says, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory now and forever. Amen. Growing in the truth of Scripture it's such a critical part of the Christian life. 
I mean, that's what Peter means in verse 18 when he says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Well, how are you going to do that? You don't just go and empty your mind and say, God, speak to me. But instead, we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ by going to his holy inspired word and saying, transform my thoughts, transform my mind. If a Christian is not growing in the truth of Scripture, you know what happens? A Christian who is not growing will become a a troublesome Christian. That's what Peter alludes to there in verse 17, right? A Christian who is not growing is going to be one who is going to be prone to being allured away in the wrong direction. What is the solution to this? Well, Peter closes out with this thought. And what does he tell us? Well, he essentially tells us this. In order to avoid that which is false, it is necessary for us to be growing in that which is true. And in order to avoid that which is false, which, by the way, is a a whole lot of what he's talked about, you know, beware of the false teachers. Here is the description. Here are the characteristics. Here's their final judgment. Here's all the stuff about false teachers. In order to avoid, essentially, what is false, What does Peter tell us as he closes out this letter? It is necessary for us to continue in that which is true. Now, we may think to ourselves that we can kind of push our daily readings of God's word to one side. We may think to ourselves that, hey, you know what? I don't really need to be keeping up with the weekly sermons or the the teachings of my local church. But if we're thinking this way, you know what? We're only fooling ourselves. And what's more, it'll be hindering our readiness for the return of Jesus. Do we see what Peter's saying here? You can avoid that which is false by growing and pursuing that which is true. You want to be ready in the way in which he's just talked about? We need to be pursuing and growing in that which is true. Growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The best way to avoid that which is false is to continue in that which is true true as he says there to him be glory both now and forever amen what a wonderful thought to bring the study of second peter to a close next week what are we going to do we're not going to go back to the beginning of second peter but instead we are going to be starting a new verse by verse book study this time it is going to be in the book of ephesians for now i just want to close not so with not so much with a whole lot of speaking words of exhortation, but I, wanna, I just want to close now with a, a word of prayer. I want us just to bring before the Lord the content that we've been able to go through and look at this morning. So let's just bow our heads, bow our hearts, and bring these things before the Lord in prayer. So Father, we, we are so grateful for the hope that you have given to us in Jesus. We recognize that <clears throat> the reason that Jesus has not yet returned is because there are still more people that you have purposed to save. So, Lord, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for dying for us. We thank you for changing our hearts. We thank you for making the way for us to be able to spend an eternity with you. So, Lord, as we, as we wait, as we await your return, we want to be, in a, we want to be living in a way that is pleasing to you. If you were to return today, we want that time to be a time of great joy 
not a time of embarrassment, not a time of shame for things that we could be getting right, but we just haven't. And so, Lord, please help us with this. Please help us if there's anything in our lives that need to be changed. Help us, help us to see if there's, if there's anything in our lives right now that need to be adjusted. Please help us to see if there's anything that perhaps we need to stop doing to live more consistently as a, as a citizen of heaven. But Lord, also help us to see if there's anything we need to start doing to live more consistently as a citizen of heaven. Please help us to see if there's anything that's hindering us right now, any perspectives that, we're, that might be hindering us from living with an eternal perspective. If there's any idols of our hearts, if there are any, any kind of strongholds in our minds that might be just preventing us from living wholeheartedly in light of your soon return. Lord, we do not only want to be living for the here and the now, we want to be sowing into the life which is to come. And so, Lord, we need your help. Help us to know how we can best do this. And Lord, in light of the fact that you could return at any time, please bring to mind if there's anything that we need to set straight right now. Please bring to mind if there are any spiritual or relational affairs that we need to first set in order so that we can be in that place of readiness if you were to return today. And Father, we do, we do pray that you would increase our desire all the more to grow in the grace and the knowledge of, of your Son, Jesus Christ, as he is revealed to us within the Scriptures. And we ask all these things for your glory and according to your great name. Amen.